Assalamualaikum and welcome to another episode of the Dr. Will Show, where I interview educators and entrepreneurs on leveling up. Each episode, I zoom in someone who's dope. Would you sit back and have a conversation on what it means to live your best life? Now, if this is your first time checking out the podcast, this is the Mobile University for Entrepreneurs, and I'm your host, Dr. Will. Today's guest is Dr. Kelly Grillo. Uh, it is Grillo, right? Yeah. Okay. I, I, should, I forgot to ask before we started. Uh, she is an educational consultant who came on my radar because I put it out there to Twitter that I'm looking for educators who are out there making multiple streams of income uh, because you know that is the purpose and focus of this podcast. Uh, I want to inform our colleagues that this is possible and really encourage them to go out there and make that coin. Uh, so for those who be listening on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Simplecast, Stitcher, and Spotify, will you please introduce yourself, Dr. Grillo? Yeah, so I'm an educator that have been serving students in the inclusive classroom, which means students with non-disabled peers and students with identified disabilities for over 20 years. I'm currently the Council for Exceptional Student uh, Teacher of the Year for my work in inclusive high school biology. So my students were typical students that were failing to thrive to read, and they were then able to compete with their non-disabled peers on statewide assessments for that end of course biology exam. So the special part of me is that I'm also a person with extreme dyslexia and having needed to learn my best way to learn both for higher education and then also to survive K-12. Um, I'm really blessed that I was able to learn that because I know not all people do. So thank you for having me today. Well, you're welcome. I'm excited. So I'm always curious as to how the people got to where they are. So what did you think you will be doing when you were growing up and how did you find yourself in a K through 12 classroom? Well, so I, I kind of laughed and you sent me these questions before and I do appreciate that because that's a great access support. Um, but so Dr. Will, I laughed pretty hard because the last thing I thought I'd be doing when I was a K-12 student was to ever return to a classroom ever <laughs> because I was that kid that threw desks and chairs. I knew more four letter words, but probably couldn't spell them correctly. Um, I was a challenge for my teachers. Um, and never did I think I was going to have the blessing to be forever in education, suspended to work with students just like me. <laughs> um, you know, I, I have lots of fun stories that um, bring me front and center. So when kids are acting not their best selves, it's easy for me to take a look and think, what is the function of that behavior? And how can I strip that away so that they can continue to thrive here? Um, so yeah, I, I really didn't think I'd be a eighth grade graduate, let alone a high school and then college three times. Um, I really thought that I would probably end up like a few of my friends from the community where I grew up in Philadelphia. I grew up in Kensington. Um, they did not make it through school. And so I, I feel very blessed to be able to to live this life forward and to share with people this story because it could be any one of our kids that are in front of us that are just not thriving. And, and I blame it on reading. I, I was not reading through the seventh grade 
and my mother was illiterate. So those things create an illness and it impacts thinking and critical thinking and decision-making. And so it was much easier for me to react and be chaotic and recreate that chaos in a classroom rather than supporting myself forward. And so it took people breaking that down and giving me real life skills to even think that this was possible. And even sometimes I wake up and I feel like I'm a fraud. I think, how did I get here? <laughs> um, how, how are my skills where they are? Um, and you know, I, I think that keeps it in check for me when I'm working with schools and I'm working with teams to think you know, there's probably some folks like me. And so how do we convince them that they're powerful? Mm. So special education, you know, it, it, hey, it's, it's not for the faint of heart. It's not something for everybody. Um, you know, you, you have your push outs, your, your push in, which when I think of teachers, you know, pushing in inclusion, I'm like, that just boggles my mind. Like, how do you do that? Uh, and then, of course, you know, you, ha you have the population of kids that uh, will be able to function on their own. And so they go through schools learning life skills and career skills. And then we have those students who are nonverbal. Uh, how did you know what attracted you to special education? Was it coming your own personal experiences in school and what which population have you worked with? So I've worked with all populations. So I've had students that would be considered like students off diploma track that would be more of your life skills kiddos pushing into a diploma track um, high school biology class with kids that were also considered disabled, but more mild. Um, and then their gen ed peers. So I've set up a program where all kids could learn in that environment together. So if you had students that were nonverbal, my materials were adapted so that students could respond by pointing or clicking um, or having the iPad say the words for them. So a lot of times I feel like students can process having different modes of communication and having tools because you even get shy kids. So kids without a disability that just they don't want to talk. And so if you put them in the middle of a STEM class where they're supposed to defend their answers, how is it you can have that shy kid interacting? So when you have these supports built from the start, having all kids, no matter what their ability level in that same space, really just gets them ready for life. It's really the question whether we have the ability to really think of all kids learning in one space and might what that looked like for each kid. So their output might not all be the same, but if we think and structure through that lesson, what do we want all kids to truly get out of this? What will some kids get out of this? And what will few kids get out of this? And we structure those, those learning events in a way that are truly meaningful for all the kids. Now I can't say that's easy. Um, I had a full year, Dr. Will, that my dad volunteered in my classroom um, so he came in one day a week and he stayed the whole entire day from the first bell to the last bell. And he debriefed with my team and he supported my class because I didn't have enough support. I didn't have a paraprofessional for certain sections. And I recruited family members and parents to come in and do the labs with and alongside us 
because it does take some few extra hands to be able to include all kids in a natural way. But I can tell you that my kids act differently because they saw family. So to see my dad, who's a retired man in his 70s, coming in and high-fiving and hugging and wearing the school pride shirt and working alongside us and then saying that I couldn't read to my kids who also struggle to read, he'd break down the lab and say, okay, what do we got to do first? What does this keyword say, you know, and work with them? And then they'd say, oh, no, Dr. Grillo couldn't read, and they'd be shocked. So I think recruiting people that are willing and able so that we can make all people successful in that space is important and taking away the barriers. So I mentioned reading a lot, reading, and you mentioned communication. So reading is a huge barrier in our K-12 schools. We've got more data saying kids are not, not thriving to read. So if we can break down those texts and allow kids to read with their ears and have all texts so that it's truly accessible so that they can reach the content we were a tradition of spoken language human beings. Reading and writing is new if you think of us anthropologically. So reading and writing isn't something that comes naturally. It is absolutely rocket science, but talking and being with and, and talking things out and experiencing, that is a part of who we are as human beings. So when I think of this whole idea of pushing and pulling out and where we're sending kids, what I really want is for all kids to be together, learning and thriving and seeing the value in human beings alongside one another, because that's when we're going to start to change society. When we push and, and shove and have kids in different areas and we send them away, we communicate a very different thing. And so I felt that I was pushed in a in an excluded class all day with seven kids and most of them couldn't behave and my hair was cut. I was angry and I wasn't thriving. And I definitely did not have access to high quality curriculum. So when we start thinking of what is occurring, special education teachers are a dying breed. We have more untrained special education teachers than trained because we can't get enough folks to come into special education. So if you're on an emergency license, lacking skills, you should not be in an isolation all day long in a class, a resource room, whatever you want to call it, with the most needy kids without collaboration. And even though it's hard on adults to collaborate in a space that they might not share all day, we've got to figure out how to do it because that's how we're going to slowly change the systematic repression that we're in the middle of. And it starts with us modeling it, you know, bringing in those outsiders, bringing in people like my dad and working in a classroom collaboratively, even though he didn't have teaching skills, he had other skills. So championing those things and all those hands doing the heavy lifting together is important. I also think one of the biggest issues I see with K through 12 is the overabundance of standards. And yeah. because of that, everyone is just trying to get through the pacing guy. <laughs> <laughs> after my own heart. So in Florida, the, the curriculum has 86 standards and I was teaching on a block. So that was roughly a standard a day. So within my dissertation studies, I looked at all of the language that you would have to process and master in a high school biology class. By volume, it's more than your Spanish class, like Spanish one for a new language. And so in science, these aren't things kids are doing incidentally. So there's tons of standards. 
So looking at historically with teams of folks, what are the highest hitting standards? How can we reduce the standards to a third? I sit in IEP meetings all day now as a coordinator and I hear kids failing over and over. High school biology is a course they fail at 20 and 30%. If we took just a fraction of those standards and let them learn it over double the time, instead of putting in that IEP, you know, 50% and 150% extended time, we could just allow time with hands-on materials and unpacking the critical content, modeling it and regulating it to fluency. We don't practice enough in any of our standards to 100% achievement. And so some things need to be learned to efficiency and down to the point where if I say it, you recall it without hesitation. And all brains can learn that. So we just gotta know where to spend our time. And I mean, something as silly as I created a competition a couple years ago where the kids would have to say within 10 seconds or less, the five major steps to DNA replication. I paired it with a body movement and a chant and we practiced it every day until 100% of my kids could do it on the spot with recall. And you know, some people would say, oh, well, that's not them learning to a deep level. Well, guess what? I don't know how many people now with a global pandemic can tell you what's happening in your DNA when it's being replicated. And my kids had words like semi, you know, um, I can't even think of it right now, but you know, um, uh, they had language that was at a level that was not your common walk down the street and hear it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I, I just feel like when we give them the chance to do that, have those mini recordings of you modeling it. I mean, I truly made it a competition so they would beat me even. Like, so I have a problem with language recall where I have to put it with a chant and a dance and practice it over and over. I get sweaty when I do interviews like this. Like I told you, I wrote all my questions out and have them ready, but it's because I know I struggle in those areas. So our kids are the same way. They can't perform until they've got it down pat, inside out and backwards. And that's when they build their confidence. We don't do that enough because we're running that train across all those standards and we're just losing them and they become unmotivated. The best motivators, so teachers lately have been like, how do I you know, engage my kids? They're not wanting to show up there. The best motivator for kids is success. So we've got to shape it and teach it and unco uh, like uncover it and coach it to the point they feel a little success because that will build that success they're not gonna be motivated if they're making Fs and 12%. I, I look at it all day long and it breaks my heart thinking, how can I change this here? So I serve a lot of schools in two districts and there's certain schools that do it better than others. And so some schools aren't ready to change yet, but they keep hearing the same language over and over. And I think teachers are starting to see like, I can slow down. I don't have to take this pacing guide because if nobody is with me and they all have Fs, it's lunacy. It's too much. Yeah, and I, I just, the, the oddity about it, the confusing part about it is you have these people who are leading State Department of Education, responsible for creating these tests, laying out these standards, and these people supposedly were teachers, school administrators, and possibly a district superintendent. So it's not like you pulled, you know, someone from UPS in, like, 
these people have the experience and they should know that it's just not necessary to cover that much material. It is better to be able to go deeper with it because if you have a certain background knowledge, a certain understanding of basic principles and fundamentals, other stuff you can get. Mm-hmm. We also have something called Mr. Google uh, <laughs> nowadays that we did not have you know, 30 years ago. So with the knowledge economy and everything happening, schools need to reflect the shift in what knowledge is critical and what isn't. Yeah, I, I actually like the idea of calling Mr. UPS and asking him his, his opinion of our standards, right? Because when we go out to the real world, that's the thing. So do our kids have the skills, the knowledge and the abilities to be functional in the real world? I know lots of kids that do just great in AP courses and they live in their, their parents' house because they can't function in the world. I mean, I, my own brother, he's a genius. He struggles. He struggles in areas that I would have never struggled in, um, but he did not struggle in the areas of academics and learning out of a book and being able to gain knowledge. And so I think when we think about all the domains of where people need to be skilled and and truly independent, rarely do I think school, like K-12 schools, are preparing our kids to have fundamental skills. We've got more kids with anxiety and social anxiety and inability to speak to one another. As a science teacher that did a lot of hands-on work, putting kids in groups of three, of people they don't know amongst their peers around their same age, they hardly talked. I had to create things like discussion starters with potential answers to feed them so they would have words. They didn't have basic social graces. And so allowing them time even, even unstructured time to interact so I can observe and understand how these organisms interact with each other. I feel like we we definitely are far away from the generation and it gets bad because that's why they're not engaged, you know, because they do have Mr. Google and they, they don't want to do busy work. They are creators. They are podcasting. They're doing what you're doing. They're researching things they love and they want to be contributors in this technology society we have. And we rarely, we block things. We cut it down. We, as soon as you go into school, you become more disabled, I say, because I use all sorts of technology all day long. And in certain schools, my technology is blocked and I got to move to a guest Wi-Fi. And now something that I'm really fluent using to make sure I don't have spelling errors or I am articulating appropriately, those things now halted. And so we are making our kids essentially more disabled within our K-12 systems. And that's really the heart of what my work is. It looks real close at what are we doing within our infrastructures, with our planning, um, and even within what we've got available and the knowledge and what the people are bringing into that system. Rarely do our IT folks think about what's naturally already occurring. Um, And we rarely get into these deep reflective conversations about lifting those gates to allow these things with some support and monitoring. There's ways to monitor our infrastructure. Um, I think with the volume of kids we serve, 
Um, and a lot of times it's one I, IT person in the whole, and I say IT guy, cause it's pretty male driven, right? Um, there are women of IT, just like women of nuclear. <laughs> I have to say that cause I've been a woman of nuclear power part of nuclear energy. But anyway, um, there's mostly one person and that's a huge responsibility to have all that safety put on your shoulders. So it's easier to lock it down into gridlock instead of having gateways and portals open so that we can use natural tools. Um, it, it's conversations that need to happen because there are people that have proficient skills with tools that they own, even teachers. I mean, we might have a teacher that has a device that knows how to do something, but the minute the school issued laptop goes out, they're now clueless. And so we create more barriers within our systems without really being aware of it. So you've been a teacher, a university instructor, and now you are a special education coordinator. What were you seeing in the work you were doing that directed you to become an educational consultant? So the work really led me to itself because as I got more degrees, I realized people at the pinnacle had skills. Um, even within our state, my husband runs a program called Patents, and it is an access technology program. And COVID, every other project has hey, help us lead this webinar to make sure it's accessible, that we have live captioning, that we... That's everybody's heavy lifting. If you get $1 in any agency, you could be a private university. If you get federal funding, you need to have access to And that's at a bare minimum. Everyone should have live captioning. It's so easy. You know, Zoom has it built in. Google has it built in. You know, we have tools that are free and easy to access. It's toggling two buttons and it's everybody's responsibility. When I taught in the classroom just I had my students before I started teaching with my PowerPoint at the front of the room, you know, I had them say, put on the captioning. They attend better and they're exposed to print more when we use live captioning. So whether you're in the building or on Zoom, there's basic standard structures that we need to be using. Those responsibility. And I definitely know that our leaders have the least amount of skills because they've been in the classroom like maybe 10 years ago. Some of them a little sooner maybe as we have more folks retiring. But at the very top, the folks with the knowledge on access, it becomes more and more and more diminished. And so it's really a need for our workplace. I wanna recruit educators with disabilities, educators that are blind, educators like me with dyslexia. I want them to feel included and be a part of things when they come. I want for them to be able to lead with their best self. And so if we're not having this conversation among ourselves, it's not gonna infiltrate the front lines and truly become a resource and a quality tool so that kids can access general education. And so here's the thing, most of our colleagues, they don't think of themselves as a business. Outside of a traditional classroom, they don't see their skills as worth monetizing. And even sometimes when you tell someone, you know, hey, 
I am, you know, consulting, I am writing, I am, you know, doing these things, we have pushback, right? But no one says that about the doctor who worked for a hospital and decided, hey, I'm going to open up my own clinic. So I don't see where that's from. But how has your experiences in K through 12 actually prepared you for the work that you're doing as a consultant? Well, so about 10 years ago is when I went more into educational consulting and it was out of being hungry. I mean, I had just rolled off of a three year stipend at $20,000 a year. I don't, that's the poverty level. I don't know how many people could actually live on a graduate stipend at that. And then we were a family of three and it was during 2008 when the recession hit. So I didn't have gas money. I didn't, I was buying groceries on a credit card. So I did know that people like to listen to me. Um, I was publishing papers. I had a natural knack for seeing what was pretty complex and making that simple for people to understand um, and to really break it down into having a companion where there was multiple steps where people could have a visual support to implement. So after we would be together, you would have these tools that easily got you to click where you needed to. So I realized real fast that I had a skill that other people didn't have. Um, within that, it was hard for me to ask for the money. So it was hard for me to say, here I am, somebody who has been afforded um, a, a grant to go to school, um, and I've given my life and dedication to you know, students with disabilities. It was hard for me to go, hey, I have this thing, and I'm going to charge you for it, um, until I really understood the way school budgets and professional development dollars worked. Mm -hmm. And then I thought, I'm a darn fool. I'm a fool for giving this away. Now, I still do it. My sister teases me and is like, you know, every dollar you give away, it's harder to redeem because people are going to think your services are free. So I, I try to be careful. I've given myself two a year where I could donate my time as a tax write-off and I ask for a tax receipt. I say, you know, my daily rate is $2,500 flat out. And I never change that. Now, if somebody wants to sponsor me, I have maybe an organization that wants to bring me in and their budget cuts off at 1500. I say, okay, well, I'll help you with a few different agencies that might be able to backfill that other thousand. I don't change my prices anymore because I think it's really important to be who I am. For an hour webinar, I charge $500. And so during COVID, I, I didn't think I would still get the money because everybody was so stressed and scrambling. What I found is when I say the work is equally as difficult, if not more difficult, people want to be engaged. They want to have tools that are high quality. It's even harder because there's so many people throwing so much crap out during COVID that I want my tools and my supports and my services to be the best. So I have not changed my prices and I'm still thriving. Um, I used to say my quota for the year, I'll be happy when I make 20,000 because my dad gave me this little, little compute variable to say, you should always make your age. And I said, you should always make your age plus 20,000 because my daddy grew up in a time that was very different than now. <laughs> he is a pension. I'm probably never going to see a pension. Um, so I, I've decided some new, new ratios. So I do, I have a, a K-12 contract. 
I build all of my days off through my K-12 contract days where I make those available. And then I do a lot of summer work that I follow up throughout the year. And so I'm consulting about anywhere from 20 to 25 days a year. And then I build in time. If I can do a webinar off time, um, I'm very open with my boss and say, this is what I'm doing. And she celebrates it. She comes to a lot of my stuff. Um, so I do find that people support you and the quality of your work begets itself. Um, lately, I've been doing different kind of um, consulting. I've been doing a lot of strategic planning because we know one shot webinars and one shot PDs and keynotes don't get it done. Um, some of my best contracts have been two and three years long where I'm going in and I do a couple of key trainings throughout the year and then I do classroom visits and coaching and follow up and folks get my phone number and so I, I really try to create that model where people have in-time support. Um, I keep track of it. And I tell my districts like, hey, your districts, people called me at this much time and I keep spreadsheets and I share them. And then in the next contract, I build in my time to afford them those hours of consulting. So I, I do think it's a smart way. I'm glad I put parameters on myself on how much I give away because I do volunteer for boards. I donate my money to different educational agencies. Um, but I think having a, a price sheet that you say tried and true, only a few times will you have to say, I'm sorry, that's my price. And you've got to walk away. Um, last year, I really wanted to do a project. I was really excited about the district, the demographics and the district, the way it sat fit my person. I was on fire for it. We couldn't get the money right. And I had to walk away. And I was okay with that because I would have really overextended myself and given everything and it would have left me disgruntled and maybe not performing my best so you got to kind of decide what your end game is going to be and if you're not sure work with people that are doing it in the early parts I didn't do the prices I do now I did a thousand dollars a day um, I didn't charge more than 200 for a webinar but this is 10 years in um, some people say that I'm charging too little, that I, my daily rate should be five grand. Um, but I do feel comfortable and I have the kind of work with the districts and the price points I want. Um, if I outprice myself too much, I'll end up, I was going to joke and say in Naperville, Illinois, but um, for anybody that's done consulting there, you, you'll feel me. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I like the districts that I do my work and I feel like my prices fit their, their background and style. And, and I do like that they also, Dr. Will, will call me in for one singular kid or a big systems change. So I'm able to work with one student's unique needs and how we're gonna get them access through the building and through their schedule and be a part of their problem solving team, or I'll do a big systems thing. So I like that folks are willing with my price points to call me in for a project that's small Although I would say a kid's needs are huge, right? I feel like I want to put my students first. Mm -hmm. um, but in terms of they're willing to call me because I'm not priced out of the park, so to speak. I hear you. And I'm glad that you brought up the pricing and your approach and all of those things uh, because it, it's been one of those things when, you know, when you're starting out and you're trying to go here. And when people come to me about advice, you know, I always tell them what you charge is entirely 
up to you and what you feel, but you have to have a basement mm-hmm. on the lowest you will go. Yeah. And I stopped doing that because it made the conversations too hard. Um, I do know that people get really creative. Um, when I say, I'm sorry, if they really want my services, they get creative and they find the money. Um, I do find that when I was spending a lot of time back and forth, back and forth, I then felt nitpicked and it felt hard to do the work. Um, so I do think if I say these are my price sheets for this year and it's really not negotiable, I understand if you got to walk away because I've had to tweak my prices throughout time um, just because of taxes and having some consulting about how I was doing travel in COVID. I'm not traveling as much. Um, there was a time where I was wheels up from Tuesday to Thursday. I was gone all the time. And that takes a toll on your family. And, you know, it, it takes a toll on your spirit, your, your physical well-being. Um, so I, I decided I was going to charge more at that time because I didn't want as many jobs. <laughs> so if you thought I was too expensive, then great. I, I was going to be home a couple extra nights. Um, but I do think you've got to find a place that it feels really good for you. Um, I have a friend that does this work and she has a disclaimer that she has a mini grant that she's willing for you to apply and you have to go through some hoop jumping and then she's willing to bring her prices down to what she calls her title one school rate list but she gives everybody the same rates and then if you fill out this profile and you fit certain criteria she will then give you a different rate scale. And the reason why is because she's like me. She wants to work with schools that might not necessarily have all the means. Um, and they have children in their buildings that do deserve our support, you know, love and services. So I just, I find that if you come up with a very clear plan, it's less like uh, the negotiation kills me. We waste so much time and all that back and forth. So I think once I started doing it this way, I felt good. People felt good. Um, they could refer me and they have my price sheet so they can kind of give it out. And I put a date on it. And so I do find that, you know, I update it annually. Um, I give it to the accountant that helps me with my taxes. Um, and she kind of coaches me as to where I should go next. If I'm making too much, where I should cap it. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of nice. Um, you know, I, I feel like this year I'm like, oh no, I'm moving to the 36% tax rate. I got to figure something else out. I've been trying to give money away this year. Um, but no, so I do think we've, we've got to have a clear pathway um, and be honest with ourselves because the work gets to be too hard. I mean, I've been sued a couple times. I know that sounds crazy, but you know, you, you, sometimes have the hard part of the entrepreneurship as well. So you got to make it a win-win all the way around. Um, you know, and I have disclaimers now. I never had a disclaimer before. You know, I know I don't sell, say I sell snake oil. <laughs> um, you live and learn from doing this work. It's, it's been a long 10 years. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. And when you mentioned that, what comes to mind is, I did a webinar for a university in July or August. And when they were sending me the information to fill out so that I could become a uh, vendor for the university, one of the things was, do you have insurance? 
And I was like, ooh, because I had been doing this consulting stuff for years without it. And I quickly called up my insurance company and said, hey, I need some business insurance for my consulting, you know, just, just to be sure that, you know, I don't anticipate it, but in case it's all good. And so those are things that I don't even know if people are thinking about or even consider it, you know, when, when, when they're first starting. So, you know, getting to that, when you were first starting out, like, how did you even get over the, the, the hurdles of just starting? Cause some people can think about it and they think about it and they think about it and think about it and they never even take the leap. They never jump for it. Uh, how did you, launch it right what did you learn what, what kind of moves did you make so that you went from idea to actually i'm out here and i'm making money yeah so i've always had an entrepreneurial spirit when i was in grade school i taught you know swim lessons i then moved to having a cleaning company as a young undergrad because nobody was funding my Rutgers university uh you know program, I was living in the dorms and I started cleaning rich people's houses and I had all my colleagues in the dorms cleaning for 10 bucks an hour and I was charging 20 while I was studying because I needed to study. So I always found ways to figure out money. Um, I owned a bike shop in Daytona Beach, for instance. I rented bicycles on the beach for, you know, in between my summers. And so I think I always had the business like mindset in terms of consulting, because you're really selling yourself, your knowledge and your skills. I was a little more hesitant. I went to a couple of seminars. Um, the University of Central Florida has a business for or a um, business center, and they have a focus on the spirit of entrepreneurship to develop community-based businesses. I went to two evenings where I listened to people and kind of observed, and I thought I could do this. Like I, I've got this. Um, and I talked to a few folks and I said, you know, here's the thing. I, I naturally teach well. I've got this set of skills. I've got this set of talent. I see this gap and I can really market within access technology, this gap. Um, I was lucky my sister and her husband owned technology by design TBD partners that I now own because I developed the access arm. They were not working within the government sector and um, within that space, they were more private. And so I worked with um, people from Synex and HP and Dell to develop a whole arm for my sister's company. And I learned a lot. I became a person within the channel. Um, we were a channel partner. I learned all about infrastructure of technology, the E-rate grant systems, how to get you know all of that bang and pop in your building so we have connectivity. And so I learned from really cool people. And I spent a lot of time in, in um, Greenville, North Carolina. Um, lots of technology hopping in there with Synex. Um, so there's great smart people and it was at the cusp of the Google wave. So I was a, a really early Google trained teacher. I, I got to visit Google. I got to do some cool stuff. Um, so I think I just went, you know, I've got the confidence now because I know my stuff. So I think you've got to just like, like look at the lay of the land and pick your narrow slice. I think define yourself and what you do and do it really well. I think what I get mostly upset with is 
on Twitter, we have our Twitter stars, right? And it's people that change their background or their focus or their Twitter tag every other month based on what's popping for the money, right? So I joke because within grant systems, people chase the money and reinvent themselves. If you pick your niche and you know it well and you're truly an expert, you are always going to have work. We are never solving all the problems to educational oppression. You know, the special education needs always going to be there. Heck, we see numbers rising in the area of autism and communication supports. So I think pick and be true to who you are and really do that well. Like kind of the Malcolm Gladwell 100-hour rule, be an expert and constantly show up as that expert. I think that's why I'm confident um, everywhere I go, people know me as knowing my technology, never, ever balking at a, a struggle for a kid or to create a plan or to work with the team. Even if I don't have the knowledge and skills on a particular device or pathway, I'm going to figure it out and get the right people in place to make it happen for that kid. Um, but so I, I think really be an expert is, is the bottom line. And then your business will flow and get people behind you that have done it before. Like learn how to create a non-for-profit if that's the way you wanna go. It's hard, it might take you a year, but I think start putting that legwork in and keep your, your people close. What I find is good business leaders, they're not afraid of competition. I will tell people every day of the week my secret sauce. I will work with them, I will help them figure out pathways, how to use legal Zoom to file their own business LLC, decide if they want an LLC, right? Like, so I think that's the kind of people you gotta surround yourself by. And people that have that yes you can attitude, if you got naysayers, get them away from you. You've got skills to offer folks, you know your stuff. I think it's defining those parameters in which you wanna work. Um, you know, we've got time off in the summer to do the work, um, be hungry enough to get the work done and deliver a high quality product. Um, I think you'll be winning every time if you go with that. And I think fear is that one thing that controls folks that holds them back. Um, if you want to listen to like kind of a cool uh, YouTube thing, look up fear setting. If you can put your fear in check and have a different mantra, you know, something else in your head to repeat that fear with. Um, or replace it with, I should say, um, you'll be successful. Mm. Doc, Doc, you said something earlier. I was like, you saw my facial expression because <laughs> when March hit and all of a sudden there was this rush to go online, to teach online, I started seeing people writing about online learning and i'm like what like i've known you for years i have <laughs> never seen you you've never written about this as far as I, I i know this is not your this is what you're not you're not known for this like where what where is this coming from and i i felt i felt a little something a little something in my heart about that because I was like, what? Like, come on, man. 
Yeah, yeah. So I will say that um, CEC reached out to me, the Council for Exceptional Children, sorry the jargon, um, and ELUMA. Um, we did uh, teaching during COVID right in March. Like we, we wrote the whole thing in two days. Um, we aired it. It's had over 150,000 downloads nation and internationally wide. Mm -hmm. um, but I went to the University of Central Florida they're really well known for online. My master's was fully online in 2002. It was a federally funded grant for persons with disabilities in special education. And I stayed on as a mentor and taught courses fully online. Like this is back with like the day of Yahoo chat. <laughs> like uh, online was kind of like tele telecommunications, like get your VCR tape out or your VHS, you know, and we'll go like watch it on your TV at night. But no, so we did a pretty good job back then. And we, um, we just took that pedagogy to the next level. I've got a lot of respect for folks at UCF. I got to work with some really cool people um, to develop things and to have coaching over a number of years. Um, and I won a, teach, a teaching university-wide teaching award for my online teaching with universal design. I took a couple of courses and fully retooled them so that students had choices throughout and could learn within their best mode of engagement. Um, but that's more out of the fact that I need that. Like I need, I, I read with my ears and I use a screen reader and it always drove me nuts that professors didn't offer an accessible textbook. You know, we have these textbooks that are online, but we don't always offer them on our courses. Um, so I, I had a lot of fun doing that work and I had a lot of experience with a lot of student feedback over the years. And so I do consider myself an expert in that area of being able to build online weblets and modules and, you know, micro, you know, certification courses. I've done that with university folks. It really angered me that people would falsely sell folks snake oil because there's so many barriers. It is really challenging for teachers on the front line. I support mm -hmm. them every day to try to take what we're doing and do it while teaching live, while kids are in front of them, while all of the barriers of the pandemic are hitting. And for us to try to make it look so simple is unfair. It's, it's not a fair, this is pandemic teaching. You know, a lot of people have been saying that versus this is not online teaching. This mm -hmm. is, I've got a crisis and I'm filling in a gap to the best of my ability. I feel like we shame teachers all the time and it's not fair to them. Um, you know, the other thing that hit in March, and I guess it was, you know, all at the same time, was the whole Black Lives Matters movement and people that had never talked about repression or equality or student rights started really getting a lot of press rebranding themselves this way. And I feel quite offended because there's a lot of folks that have been leading this work for a long time. And it's not work that you can do in a one webinar or one, you know, sit and get. And I feel like it speaks to such a level of disrespect for my colleagues doing that work over time. Um, you know, I can get past the online learning thing, but when we're talking about shaping the cultures of our schools, to go in and sell yourself as an expert when you've not really done the hard work is not okay in my book. Um, it makes me quite angry. And, you know, even though I'm smiling through it, um, you, you know who the real people are doing the work. Um, not to say that we can't reinvent ourselves and go back for second degrees and really, you know, peel back the onion and do some self-study. 
But when we're leading that work, we need to be truly experts. Um, so every day of the week, people that are experts will have work. You know, if you want to do this work, I think be true to your mission, who you are, and the work that you're deeply passionate about. Um, and I also say have a hobby. I mean, if you can make your hobby your, your you know, side hustle, that might keep you in the profession longer. I know that folks that have something that have nothing to do with education, um, maybe you like to sing and you're into karaoke or you write music or you're an artist, you know, whatever it is, I think save your soul and, you know, keep yourself creative. I find the most creative thinkers in this work stay the longest um, because we're able to continually, you know, have creative ways about getting to the heart of the problem and, and truly a, a solution. We're not sitting in the teacher lounge mad about things. We're mobilizing and taking action. So walk us through one of your workshops. What can your attendees expect to see, do, learn? What will they be walk, walk away with being able to do? So no matter what I'm working on, you'll get something practical you can use tomorrow. So even within the pieces that I publish or you know anything that I work on, teachers are busy and they don't have time to work through the, the rhetoric. So we have to make things really easy to you know, unpackage and go, go to work tomorrow. So within my trainings, I always have strategies that are truly take it to the class tomorrow. Um, I do a keynote that is pretty popular right now. And um, it's, I, I named it from the corner of hope. I grew up on Hope Street. So telling my story and giving a contextual feel and then knowing the data that there's less than 1% of all kids with disabilities that make it through college the first time, let alone the second and the third and leading this work. I need colleagues just like me. So I need to get people fired up to want to do this work because nothing systematically is gonna change unless there's more people arriving. So I think selling myself to folks and them truly feeling like they had a personal experience with me and truly learn something of deeply about my background to then take it to the class because there's probably a student like me. Um, you know, that SLD or the specific learning disability category is the largest we serve. Um, they say one in five students, you know, have dyslexia. And so we know there's non-readers and there's kids that are confused and it's comorbid with language processing issues. And so I give real easy to unpack strategies that folks can put it to the class tomorrow. Just something as simple as the five plus or minus two rule. For a kid that really, really struggles, we've got to show them, model it and really break it down easy seven times they need it. For kids that are uh, okay learners, they can see it three times. But for our kids to get to that level of automaticity, we've got to truly do high level rehearsals um, and just really unpacking within those content areas. So my background's really STEM. So I really do a lot in collaborative thinking, problem solving, the engineering framework. Um, how do we get kids to become problem solvers versus just rote memorization kinds of learners. 
Um, and so most people would think that I'm like against fluency training and I'm not. So I think we need that sweet balance of direct instruction where I model and I teach you a specific skill. I have a fluency component, but then I have a hands-on where you can you know, learn by doing. So I think just the structures and how we run our classes. Um, so I've not been doing as many one hour sit and gets. I've been really structuring teams across that strategic thinking pathway across like two and three year rolling out new systems. Um, but what's cool with that is I get to work real closely with small groups of teachers for maybe a whole year. And then they're like the adoption pilot year where it's fun to start hearing them be like little Dr. Grillo's. I hear their language, I can reinforce it. I, we do success stories. Um, one of the things that I like to say all the time is nothing begets success more than success. So if you see teachers having fun in the building and they're using a system and they're celebrating kids great work and they're getting noticed for it, you're going to probably want some of that. So really working with the willing and then moving into some of those resistors, um, you know, within our systems, what I know from my work over the last 10 years, the best thing to do is say one size fits all and here everybody's going to get it because that will be a failed initiative. <laughs> so um, I don't do that. I have worked for a couple of principals that think we're going to do that. Um, but behind the scenes, I kind of coach teachers what they got to get through and have and model and then we'll get to the good stuff. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I model the work. I, I do the hard work. I model it and I give great tools. I'm always a champion of access tools. So if I have colleagues that are blind that might not be able to hear, um, they can always access my trainings because I will have closed captioning. I will have advanced organizers out prior to, and then I will always give my slides. It kills me that you can pay a lot of money for training and then the presenters won't give their slides like it's some kind of top-notch secret. Um, that's not okay, I don't think, because people with processing deficits need access to the materials. So a little bit about me you'll always get my phone number too so the joke about my phone number so for your podcast listeners out there my phone number spells fun 386 and then the next numbers are 383 and I joke that the eight split in half is three sandwiching an eight so 383 um, kind of like a big sub holding on to that eight and then the last four digits are my birthday. It's 0977, so August 9th, 1977. So when I talk to folks, I say, I'm truly a person that needs support with processing. I couldn't remember my own phone number if I didn't have a strategy. And so although I'm really talented in a lot of ways, that number to me is pretty meaningless without a riddle, a rhyme, a mnemonic, or a way to know it. So fun, 383-0977 give it out all the time. People do text me for support or they text me to hire me. <laughs> There's a little plug, right? You got to have some advertisement in there. Um, so I do find that um, I think that personal touch makes educators feel like they can take the learning risk. They're less fearful. They can implement and ask me a question later. Um, I leave my DM open on Twitter. Um, I, I try to be on Twitter and do Twitter chats and tw you know do the chats where um, people can learn more. Um, but so, yeah, I think you're going to get a little bit of something to use tomorrow and you're going to get a feel good story and you're going to feel like this works possible because if anybody could reach me, you can reach whoever's.
So one of the things that I like to do when I work with teachers is to keep it uh, really simple. I don't like to, even though I'm all in on the future of work and digital transformation and disruption, and it, it gets me giddy and I can watch videos and read about it. That is something that I do not take with the teachers. Uh, and even when I'm doing a Schoology training and we're covering, well, how do I design instruction here? I keep it to, okay, you know about gradual release. So we're gonna design this in the same way of, of gradual release. And we're gonna start with your modeling. And then I always tell teachers like, look, create a five to 10 minute video that is going to be a really tight direct instruction video for your students. Like, look, I know they got you out here doing these Zoom and they recording them, I said, but ain't nobody gonna go back and watch a 45 minute Zoom video. No. You're not gonna do it. Your students for show ain't gonna do it. So your modeling piece, do this. And then I walk them through the guided practice and I say, okay, you're gonna pull this from your curriculum and then you're going to work with your students with them at the same time because we have cami and students as you're going through this document they could be doing with the document blah 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 and so i try to keep it real simple and do it in a way into, in which i'm not saying push this button push that button push this button we're going how you're going to design this instruction so that when you leave me you're 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 good you're confident you're, you're ready to go out and actually implement this in the work that you're doing, uh, what is your role in actually transforming the practices of teachers? So I get to sit in a lot of IEP meetings. So I get to hear like the, the outcomes, the annual outcomes and what we're putting in place for supports. And so I'm also then in classrooms because I get to work with kids so that they can make sure they know how to access at the independent level their technology tools. So like eye tracking software, students with communication devices, students that need a switch, um, students that maybe the school bought Chromebooks and they're, you know, more fluent with iPad with all the tools built in and their apps. So seeing kind of how students move about the space. Um, I love that you said gradual release because I find that as soon as we put computers in place for all, we stopped modeling um, I feel like that direct instruct, instruction segment needs to be really clear. Um, I teach teachers about task analysis. And so walking through, looking at all of those nuances because our children with autism aren't picking up by accident things that if we don't say it, they're missing it. And so I find that we're teaching to some in those inclusion spaces, but even within unpacking the skill, I mean, even something as simple as showing students in a sentence frame, the specific place to put their words and to model it and have it being filled in while you're unpacking it. And, you know, then going through the, we're gonna do this together and pausing and allowing students to fill it in. I think those things are such a need. Um, when I work with teachers in the classroom, they get to see kind of my gradual release in the sense of 
of prompting hierarchy? Like, so is it a full physical prompt or are we at the point where I can just tap and the student understand? Like, so within special education, you know, that gradual release could be more intense for kids for a little bit longer period and then release it a little more slowly. And then to the point where we just need to remind. But I find that some of the parts of what we do are assumed. And what I like to say is that I don't like to assume anything. I check and I'll say, do you have this part? Do you like even something Dr. Will as easy as logging into Schoology? I mean, I had a set structure on my classroom, like a checklist of take out your computer, open the computer, make sure the computer's on, go to Schoology, retrieve password and login. If you're stuck at this point, raise your hand or contact teacher, get Grillo. Like, because some students would be um, polite and sit there and not respond. So you think they're just not doing your bell work, but they're just sitting there quietly because they haven't figured out when an appropriate time would be to interrupt you because they can't get their password in. So I think knowing those things and modeling and working and checking across the timeline with kiddos and having teachers see that, it, they start to say, oh, so, it is very much checking and prompting. And I have teachers that used to ask the word, are you okay? Well, I'm not bleeding, I'm not having a heart attack. My answer is yes. But the question they really mean is what part of this assignment is tricky for you? So when we ask a different question, our kids could say, oh, I don't know how to get started or it's not allowing me to use dictation or I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do next. If we ask the question, what part of the assignment has you stuck? Kids will tell you. But if you go up and say, are you okay? Most definitely, they're gonna say, yeah, because they're not having a panic attack. They're not bleeding. They're not needing 911. They just say, I'm good. And so I think, you know, even phrasing that and retraining teachers when it's truly an included space to know the way in which we phrase our questions and the question that we ask to kids when we're regulating practice it needs to be more specific. Tell me the two parts that are most challenging. That has changed my teacher's life because if they're doing multiple step problems in math and they're not able to take that last number and type it into the calculator as a support to get the new answer when they're not yet fluent, they can say the part that's tricking me is I can't transpose this number. If you just say, are you okay? They're gonna be like, yeah, and keep getting the wrong answers and get zeros. So I, I do find that, you know, just coaching teachers in the way in which we're supporting kids, especially students with disabilities that don't necessarily want to look different than their peers when they're in those included spaces, knowing that if we just check in with kids to find out the most tricky parts, then reviewing that for the whole class to say, you know, I surveyed 50% of you and you all said this point in the instruction is hard. Let's all look back up here. I'm going to reteach it because I can do a better job. Instead of saying, you got to work harder, Dr. Will, we got to make your skills harder, right? No, I got to work harder to reach you. So I think that phrasing, when I work with teachers, I think they look and the paradigm shifts a little bit more that it's okay if the kids aren't learning because I can always go back and teach it slightly differently. Um, I feel like teachers in the past, maybe 15 years ago, would have felt offended by that. Like their skill wasn't enough, but what we know is the diversity in learners is just really wide. So teaching it slightly a different way would be within that universal design. Um, but I do love that you said to, to narrow that to 10 minutes. 
So I've been telling teachers the threshold for students is anywhere between that five to eight minutes. Um, my dissertation looked at fluency training and we tested over 250 kids between the three, seven, or three, five and seven minute mark. What we found out was five minutes for fluency training of looking at a set of like vocabulary words, let's say, um, for five minutes gets to the same outcome as if we sat you there for seven, so you had more wasted time. So the sweet spot for kids is very narrow, but if it's a specific skill, we've got to unpack it in a very small, you know, thumbnail, like a bite-sized piece. That's why I love um, Edpuzzle. So I, my Ed Puzzle videos are never longer than eight minutes and I can stop it and say, write this down and tell them to write a specific thing down. Um, but to have them practice those skills, even to fluency, that if you have prompts and they're supposed to react, we should reinforce those. Do that notebook check, give them verbal feedback about how they organized it, how they labeled the paper. Like we should really model that in the gradual release as well. Have the Ed Puzzle up talk about how our brain's thinking about how we're doing. Students don't naturally self-regulate to efficacy. So we've got to actually model those things and then partner them and let them do it in partners and then move to independent. Um, in COVID, we went straight from, you know, we're all together learning to you're fully online by yourself learning or at home with packets. No wonder why kids didn't have self-regulation skills. We didn't teach them how to structure their time at home, how to use a visual schedule, how to set timers. And, you know, I had all sorts of timers for our call tonight. Like, you know, I had even a progression plan of how to prepare and Kids don't think like that. So we've got to model and unpack those things. But that's exactly what I've been doing in, in the work that I've been doing is really talking about all those pieces that we do. It's like the hidden curriculum, let's say, that we don't usually unpack and that we give people a new set of, like a new set of framework skills with so that they could, they're, they're teaching like widgets are good. The tool is good. They learn the tool. Like they're just not learning how to unpack it in a way to get to student, you know, success or that self-regulation. Mm -hmm. So before we go, uh, please speak to why educators should be shameless in pursuing the lives they want for themselves. So one of the best things we can do for our students is lead with confidence. Um, I think our profession, and I always call it a profession, um, will start to get respected more when we champion and value the skills that we have. Most of us have advanced degrees. Um, you know, some of our districts require it within, you know, the first three years of teaching. Um, so I feel like we have to start demanding the respect that we deserve and then champion that with confidence. Um, all of us have skills that we could go tomorrow and either career change with and would be highly valuable. All of us have skills that we can then take it to a different level. Like we're learning marketing at, at a fast rate. Schools have been doing a much better job with marketing. We, you know, some of our teachers are also managing money. They're fundraising. Um, some of our teachers are running clubs that are so dynamic. We've got so many skills within the schoolhouse that you really need to be able to be your biggest fan and say, I'm an expert in this. This is why, you know, my services are needed. This is how you're going to benefit from them. And this is how your life is going to improve. Um, but until we start doing that grossly as a profession, 
um, we're really not going to get the respect. You know, you and I kind of talked about before we got started tonight, there's plenty of folks in other career pathways that are shameless. You know, they open up, you know, a secondary business, they go out on their own, they figure out ways to, you know, monetize themselves in a way where people are willing to come and spend their hard earned dollars. Um, and they're shameless. I feel like teachers are expected to work beyond the contract because it's a perceived thing. I tell teachers all the time to manage your time you do have. If you're working a ton outside of the schoolhouse, then you're wasting and spinning your wheels and you're going to burn yourself out and not be here for 20 years. Um, if we're only getting paid for those contractual hours, and I know during COVID, this is going to be a hard statement to stomach, but we've got to figure out different systems. There's lots of different ways we could be providing feedback. There's lots of different strategies we could be deploying so that we are not, I mean, Schoology is an awesome example. Students could have adapted tests that are read to them where they can dictate inside of, and we can provide feedback within each of the questions that we structured that are model answers. And we can say to the student to self-assess, were you close to this? No, then I'm going to reset it for you and you're going to take this assessment again. That's good. They got to see a perfect model. They saw the questions. They digested the question. So teachers that are spending all this time grading, even if you're an English teacher, we could be grading systematically maybe the intro, then a body paragraph, then conclusions, then teach just transitions, then and we could systematically grade across a year instead of every single time we give essays. I had a, a colleague that said, it takes me 17 and a half minutes each student I have. And I have 212 students. So she calculated how much time she was spending grading essays. And I thought, oh, that's so much time I could be making money. So if we start to think about our time more valuably and we collaborate to figure out a new way of doing work that could save us time within the schoolhouse and put us back to the contract, and then you use your personal time to monetize, you're gonna be giving people gifts because most likely you're gonna be sharing the strategies that have saved you inside the schoolhouse. You know, so I, I feel like, and people wanna buy that because they're teachers that want to survive. So I do think that if we just reshape our time, skills and tools, it we can get paid well for it. Um, and even with, with other structures, I know I'm a, a pretty good, time manager. So I have people that look to me to train outside, like in, in um, non-for-profits. I work with non-for-profits a lot. And what I find is they're like, well, volunteers just can't manage their time to be able to give their talents. And so we talk about what that might look like and how to structure the, those volunteer roles. So I think, you know, deciding what you're truly good at doing, organizing time management, you know, and then asking for the money and, and building your client repertoire. I mean, I have lots of folks that would be willing to give me a testimonial um, because they've been, you know, working with me for a long time. So I feel like build that brochure up and be shameless, you know, rock it. You deserve it. You, you've done the time. You're powerful and smart. And there's people that look at you every single day for guidance you know, and truly they're paying clients too. If you look at each of your students as a, as a price tag, I mean, if we figure out the per money per each class, you're, you're, you have students that are looking up at you for a way because they respect that you're there. I feel like we've got to do that on the outside too. Mm. All right, Dr. Grillo, thanks for coming on the show. 
Well, thank you for having me. This has been lovely. I appreciate you sending me the questions in advance. You know, that's an access strategy. If we want our students to be as engaged as humanly possible, we wouldn't keep things secret. Um, and I do appreciate all your hard work you're doing in the field. And I love connecting with you on Twitter. So keep up the great work, Dr. Will. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Now, people, you know how I do this. This podcast episode will be on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Simplecast, Stitcher, and Spotify. I need you to subscribe and share, follow. Now, the stars are awesome. I like those. But if you will, leave me a comment, leave a review because I'm trying to be found. And I'm also trying to get Oprah on the show. And I want her to know that I'm doing big things around here. Again, I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Kelly Grillo, for coming on and dropping so many gems. And I'd like to thank you again for checking out another episode of the Dr. Will Show. As always, people, invest in you, ADU, peace.